Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. My name is Monica Jeans, an associate in the London M&A team, and today we are going to be discussing some of the key issues for financial investors when considering a P2P. I'm joined by Lee Coney and Marcus Steffenblom, two corporate partners with extensive experience on P2Ps. P2Ps, or take privates as they are otherwise known, is the term used to describe a transaction where an offer is made for a listed company, usually with a view to obtaining 100% control. This results in a listed company passing from public to private ownership. The conduct of P2Ps is regulated across Europe with the aim of providing an orderly framework for the execution of transactions and the fair and equal treatment of shareholders. The regulations also provide an opportunity for competing offers to be made and resolved. Although P2Ps are a feature of public markets throughout economic cycles, periods of uncertainty or volatility can provide specific opportunities. Pre-COVID-19, we had seen a rise in the number of takeovers backed by financial investors as private market transactions became increasingly crowded. And we are once again speaking to financial investors about opportunities in this new market environment. Lee, on this point, I wanted to start by asking you about current market conditions in what has been a turbulent year so far. Thanks, Monica. Yes, we have certainly seen volatility this year as a result of COVID-19, which caused a very significant drawdown in the global equity markets and a drawdown that came quickly. It was, in fact, the fastest ever bear market. That said, it was followed by some historic rallies in the in the markets, which erased a good amount of the losses. So the question now is, where do the markets go next as investors weigh up several factors, including the prospect and timing for a vaccine? the possibility of a second wave of infections and the extent and nature of further fiscal and monetary interventions. So what do you think this means for P2Ps? I would say that whilst market volatility certainly can provide opportunities for take privates, discussions around value may be more complex, particularly given the current challenges around forecasting. And with a number of listed companies having withdrawn guidance, price discovery for listed equities is currently taking place in a bit of a vacuum of information around revenue and earnings. However, with motivated parties, we could well see more P2Ps later this year as investors continue to look for opportunities created by the current conditions. Although I think it depends on precisely the assets that are being looked at, because following the rally, there is probably more value in some sectors than others. It's also important that the bet markets in the form of acquisition finance once again support the take-private market. Thanks, Lee. So moving on to some of the specific issues, I thought we might start with diligence given its importance to any M&A process. Yes, I think that is a good starting point. And Monica, I know that you have led due diligence exercises on both P2Ps and private M&A transactions. So it would be good to hear your thoughts on any key differences. 
They definitely are different, um, although clearly both have the objective of ensuring the bidder is comfortable committing to the transaction and both achieve that aim, but through different approaches. On a P2P, the target starting point will be that as a listed company, there is market transparency on all material aspects of its business. That said, diligence on P2Ps routinely goes beyond public information, so the discussion is really just about how much further. In summary, diligence for P2Ps is usually narrower in scope with a higher materiality filter, and I'd say more of the diligence is done through face-to-face meetings. I agree, and that should play into how a potential bidder approaches the formal request for diligence on a P2P it's very difficult for a listed company board to grant access to an open-ended process and may be criticised for doing so. So it's important for the bidder to present a focused diligence process over a limited period. A focused approach, together with a reasonable timetable, will maximise the chance of being granted access by the target company. In practice, it's simply another point on the deal for discussion Financial investors certainly shouldn't be shy about asking for what they need if there is a recommendable price on the table, but there is inevitably a discussion on the precise scope. Thanks, Lee. Any other tips on how to approach diligence? Be organised. For example, make sure the approach to diligence is properly coordinated with any consortium members or lending banks so that the target gets the impression of a joined-up process. That will give them the comfort that the diligence exercise will be as smooth as possible. What do you think, Marcus? I agree with that. The other thing with P2P diligence is that it is really a go-no-go decision on the deal or possibly a price discussion. Unless the bidder is also buying a large stake from an existing shareholder, there are no reps or warranties to allocate risk. So diligence on public M&A is binary in its assessment. That's right. The bidder is on risk in terms of diligence once the transaction is announced. There is no subsequent recourse absent something like a fraudulent situation. The other thing to bear in mind is that there may be takeover rules which make a target more guarded about the disclosure of information. It's common across European jurisdictions for there to be an equivalent information rule whereby the same diligence information needs to be provided to a rival bidder, even if less welcome. So this means that the target is not just thinking about the current bidder, it is also thinking about who else may come forward, for example, a close competitor, and request the same information. And that can be a source of frustration for the first bidder, but it is a legitimate point for the target to make. But it's worth pressing on a bit, as sometimes it can be used as an excuse for not disclosing a relevant piece of information. I also think there is an education process. A financial investor is likely to require more extensive diligence, as it may not know the asset as well as, say, a trade competitor. Plus, there will be financing banks with their own diligence questions. But that's okay, and that should not be of any concern to the target, provided, as Lee says, it's properly coordinated. Ultimately, if it's a deal the board wants to do, there needs to be a degree of flexibility. 
I think that's exactly right, Marcus, and flexibility on both sides. It's also worth noting that the board of the listed company will ask its own advisors whether the bidder's proposed approach to diligence is appropriate. So it's a good idea that the target side advisors are up to speed on the thinking so that everything is placed in context and explained properly to the target board. Lee, any other thoughts on dealing with a listed company? I think it's important to remember that as a listed company, the board is subject to public and shareholder scrutiny, and therefore it will be sensitive to the paper trail around its decisions. This may become particularly sensitive in the event of any shareholder activism later in the takeover process, where questions may be asked, and they may be asked in a public forum. On the plus side, this means that if a bidder submits a well-considered proposal, which is clear on value, timetable and conditionality, it should be taken seriously and the bidder should receive a considered response from the board. It should also receive it fairly swiftly as a listed company will not want the status of discussions at any given time to be unclear. But equally, when it comes to agreeing price, unless the opening offer is clearly recommendable, the board will want to be seen as having had a negotiation on that. So there is often some back and forth before the parties reach agreement on the commercial terms. That's interesting. So it plays directly into the dynamic of the commercial discussions. On the more technical side, compliance with market abuse and other disclosure rules are also a key consideration when dealing with a listed company for both the bidder and the target side. I agree. Leak risk is a potential issue for the bidder too, as a spike in the share price following a leak may result in the offer becoming more expensive if there is a minimum price rule in the relevant jurisdiction. Also, in some jurisdictions, the bidder may be held to a certain deadline to formalize its offer, and a leak will give an interloper the opportunity to make its own move. Does this need for secrecy also impact the timing of approaching target shareholders for support? Yes. Unless there is an existing anchor investor you need to talk to about buying its stake anyway, a bidder may want to seek the formal support of significant shareholders prior to announcing the transaction. Those shareholders are typically approached a day or two before announcement. If you don't get that support, the bidder will then need to decide whether to proceed without it. The 24 hours before announcement can therefore be quite intense when discussions are taking place with key shareholders. Yes, I've definitely experienced that. But if secured shareholder support does provide a form of deal protection, although how much protection depends on their precise terms, Marcus, what would you say about deal protections on P2Ps more broadly? The position varies across different jurisdictions, but deal protections are much more limited on a P2P than on a private transaction. In particular, it's difficult to rely on a business-related MAC-type condition if you look to terminate the bid. Often, you can only terminate for non-satisfaction of key antitrust and regulatory conditions or if the acceptance condition or voting threshold is not satisfied. So generally, no US-style merger agreement? No. 
European investment agreements are usually much more limited than that. The same goes for break fees, which are seen only in some jurisdictions, but in others less so. Yes, in the UK, break fees are rare these days as they can only be granted in limited circumstances. And there is a general prohibition in the UK on contractual restrictions which seek to control how a target company conducts the offer. For example, a bidder cannot control how a target runs its business over the course of an offer, although there are important protections for the bidder in the takeover code on that point specifically. Marcus, is this the same across other European jurisdictions? Yes, but as I said, it does vary. Spain, for instance, is similar to the UK in that the bid conduct agreement can only be very limited, whereas in Germany, the bidder is permitted to have some influence over the running of the target's business, provided this does not result in de facto control of the target or unduly restricts target's management. That's interesting. Now, let's turn to what is seen as another risk to transaction certainty, government intervention. We all know this has become quite a significant area on almost any transaction. I agree. The relevant thresholds for foreign investment control are constantly being lowered and the relevant sectors expanded. The idea of all of that is that a country protects its critical sectors, such as technology and defense, from foreign influence. But in reality, whenever a European target has a US business, CFIUS must be on a bidder's radar nowadays, even if you're not a Chinese buyer, and even if it is not a defenses or a semiconductor business. And whenever any non-EU or non-EEA entity appears somewhere in the bidder's shareholder structure, national foreign investment regimes may apply. However, the key to foreign investment control is to have a proper process in place, just like you have for merger clearance. So is foreign investment clearance any different from merger clearance from a process perspective in that case? Well, the difference I see is that for antitrust law, courts and authorities had decades to establish a reliable framework. The outcome of a merger control proceeding is much more predictable than what we see when it comes to foreign investment approvals. Here, the process is more around questions of policy and sometimes even politics. Often, even the case handler will not know from looking at the application whether a clearance has chances of success because this may depend on the input he or she will receive from other ministries or governmental bodies. Understood. But in that sense, a P2P is not much different from any private transaction, is it? That's right in a way. But then again, as Lee notes, public takeovers usually enjoy a lot of public attention. And that means that politics may simply play a greater role than in a private transaction. More politics and also more opportunities for intervention by active shareholders. Isn't that right? Definitely. In a P2P, bidders are not only dealing with the shareholders that are already invested. The announcement of a takeover is also the starting signal for activist investors who may want to get invested in response to the announcement. The bet is that the bidder can and will pay more than the announced offer. 
And so the activist speculates they can make a profit by assembling a sizable stake and campaigning for a higher offer price. We have seen this across a number of European jurisdictions. Including Germany? Yes. This strategy is particularly attractive in Germany, where the offer itself is not an activist's last shot. To gain full control over a target, bidders need to put in place a so-called domination agreement after the offer closes. And at that time, minority investors will have a right to sell their shares to the bidder at fair value, which cannot be lower than the three-month average share price. Plus, they have appraisal rights and can claim in court that the compensation did not adequately reflect the real value. And speaking of court proceedings, the UK recently had its first example of activists seeking to challenge the terms of a P2P in the High Court several months after the shareholders had voted in favour of the transaction. The P2P was being implemented by a UK scheme of arrangement, and so the challenge at court was not traditional litigation because court approval is the final part of every UK scheme of arrangement process. But it certainly shared certain characteristics of litigation. The challenge was unsuccessful, but it remains to be seen whether this is a sign of things to come or whether it has given activists pause for thought. As a more general point, I would say that shareholder activism is simply another potential intervention event that should be planned for alongside, say, interlopers, governments and regulators. Although the bidder cannot control whether shareholders become active or not, it can plan for the possibility and consider what angles of attack there may be and the possible responses. Okay, so the last topic I wanted to raise is that of discussions between financial investors and management teams. In particular, is it possible for a financial investor to agree incentivization arrangements as part of the PTP upfront? Again, there will be important local variations, but there is usually an ability to agree management incentivization arrangements as part of the transaction. It is sometimes subject to review by the takeover regulator and may require a fairness opinion or a shareholder vote. One reason is that management should not be lured into recommending the offer just because their compensation package is so attractive. Also, if management holds shares, this may mean that individual shareholders are being treated differently. Sometimes it may be easier from a legal standpoint and also institutionally for a financial investor to deal with any incentivization post-completion. Either way, understanding early in the process how a financial investor would like to approach the issue is important as it allows any procedural and governance issues to be considered early in the process. If a bidder agrees incentivization arrangements upfront, the conflict of interest for the relevant executives must be carefully managed, and that may feed into the governance process of the target. For example, it may mean that the relevant executives do not participate in board meetings that discuss the merits of the offer. And I would add, as a final thought today, that we have seen a mix of approaches in the UK. There certainly are examples of management incentivization being agreed up front, but also a fair few examples of financial investors delaying any specific discussions until after completion, 
although they may disclose a general intention to put in place incentivization in line with schemes for other portfolio companies. But as you say, Marcus, understanding early in the process what the bidder wants to achieve is the key thing. Thank you, Lee and Marcus, for joining me on this podcast today. As we have discussed, there are a number of considerations when contemplating a P2P, from the impact of current market conditions, managing the diligence process, timing of shareholder engagement, the limited availability of deal protections, risk of government intervention and shareholder activism, and varying approaches to management incentivization. These and several other issues are explored on a jurisdictional basis in our P2Ps in Europe publication, which is available on our website. This provides an at-a-glance comparison of key issues and thresholds on a P2P across seven European jurisdictions. You have been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn.